Hello. Nope. Go ahead, Brian. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian Sheppey. And I'm Donya Williams. How are you guys doing today? Hope you guys are enjoying your Sunday. Yes, yes, yes. So today, guys, we are going to, we have a treat for you. Um, today, we're going to be talking with LaBrenda Garrett Nelson. LaBrenda Garrett Nelson is a certified board genealogist, first and foremost. Um, she created the SLIG, which stands for the, oh God, where did it go? It just disappeared from <laughs> Salt Lake Institute of Genealogy. Salt, that's right. Salt Lake Institute of Genealogy. She um, also taught, served on the faculty at Genealogical Research Institute of Pittsburgh, Genealogical Institute of Federal Records, and the Institute of Genealog Genealogy and Historical Records. Um, one of the main things about her, which I'm so proud that she just told me and I just learned it, is that she is the first African-American president of the board certified in 64 years it was created 64 years ago and so I, she's the very first one so good that is so awesome so i want to welcome you and i want everybody else to please welcome LaBrenda garrett nelson to the group thank you <laughs> so how are you today LaBrenda? i am as well as one can be in these that's times. great Yes, these times we've. I had, uh, I had my first tele visit with a doctor last week. And so this intake person called you first and they ask you questions and they make you take your own temperature and all of that. And then she said, Have you been experiencing sadness or depression lately? And I said, Yeah. And she said, How long has it been? And I said, May 25th when George Floyd was killed. Like, <laughs> and she, I could tell. That I think I was talking to a sister and she said, I know what you mean, right? But I guess that was the question they always ask. But in this time and, and place, I think we're all experiencing that, right? I, yeah, I know I am. I mean, I had to step away from Facebook. I, I, haven't, I haven't turned the TV on in about three or four days. And my, my wonderful cousin, Brian here, he just kind of stepped up because he knows how I feel about my children, specifically boys. And you know he's um he's not he's not just my cousin he's my friend so I can talk to him about different things he you know my personal stuff and he just did he just stepped up like he always does did, did y'all know I loved him if you did not <laughs> I do I love him so much <laughs> oh it's a tough it's been a tough time for a lot of us and whatever support we can give this is support we can give. Yeah, yeah. So I want to jump right into you, LaBrenda. I want to talk about, we want to try to get touch on everything. We want to touch on your board certification. But the first thing I want to know is what made you get into genealogy? Well, it, you know, like many people, I, well, first, I was born in South Carolina. I grew up in Brooklyn. But I think a lot of Southerners grow up hearing about their people. So I had a general interest. Um, in family history, but after Roots, I, like everyone else, kind of jumped on the bandwagon. And so for years after Roots, I was researching primarily my Garrett line. That is the family line that got me hooked on genealogy. Um, but, and, and so this was before I was living in New York at the time. So I would travel to DC to go to the National Archives and just become excited at seeing um, microfilm of the census record with an ancestor's name on it. Um, things were, uh, this was in the early days. And the other thing is that there were not the classes and courses that you can take now. They weren't as prevalent. So I spent decades working full time as a tax lawyer, and this was kind of a hobby. So before I ever took a course, I had um, published three different versions of my family history book. Um, and I did that kind of gathering together everything I could about my family. And I was lucky because there, was a, there were two earlier family historians that I was, whose work I was able to build on. Um, one was um, listed as the family historian on a 1933 or 34 reunion program. And there was another that I met, uh, I met her in the month that she died. And it turns out that her grandfather had 
started our family reunions in Lawrence, South Carolina in 1933. And she had actually, and this woman lived in Washington also. She had traveled uh, back to Lawrence from DC in the seventies and interviewed that woman who was listed as a family historian on the 33 reunion program. And she had interviewed her. So she and her older sister, and she was in her sixties at the time, kind of showed up at our 1986 reunion. And we got back to Washington. We had a really long telephone conversation. She mailed me some stuff and she died by the end of the month. So it was like, this, I met her that wow. month, died, but her son allowed me to go through her files and make copies of things. So she and this older woman had found a lot of stuff, but no one had ever pulled it all together. So I tried to do that again, even before I ever took a course and before I understood that there were best practices to follow. And I'm glad I did it because it, even though it's not documented in the way in which I would do it today, I, I tried to preserve what we had and what we thought we um, Things like newspaper articles about family members and well, she had an original program from that old, the reunion from the thirties, things like that. So I was um, a partner at Ernst & Young. It's one of the big four, um, I, people call it an accounting firm. EY calls itself a professional services firm. So, but, and basically they have um, at 60, they want you to retire. And some people go off and get other jobs and all of that. And I did not do that. I, um, that's when I decided to, to get serious about genealogy. And a couple of years before I retired, I actually uh, enrolled in the Boston University genealogy certificate program that they have online, which is like a 14 or 15 week program. And that let me know how much I didn't know and how much there was to learn about doing this work. And then I signed up for Progen, which is this um, very much uh, better in terms of cost effectiveness uh, year long. And now it's a year long study group um, that's mentored by either a certified genealogy genealogist or an accredited genealogist. And I did all of that and I just uh, decided to apply. I had never heard of the board for certification of genealogists. It um, has been around since 1964. And I always uh, am, careful to point out that there are many people, such as yourself, doing excellent work who just haven't taken the time to put together the portfolio that you need to submit to um, the Board for Certification of Genealogists in order to become a certified genealogist. Um, but I wanted folk to know that I knew what I was doing. So even though um, we, don't we don't keep these statistics, but you know how Black folks know about what other Black folks are doing, there mm -hmm. hasn't been a lot of uh, African-American certified associates. And there have been some, and I'm trying to think of the, um, Paul, gosh, one of the founders of OGS was I think, the first um, black person who obtained that credential. Um, and, and we can talk about that later if you want, kind of what you need to do to apply. But I applied in 2015 and I, all of my, pieces of my portfolio involve African-American families. And so it's entirely possible to become certified. Some people think that there's a kind of bias, but all of my people were black and they weren't like famous black people. It's all about applying the standards to whatever your research project is. Okay. Um, so that is how I became involved. I just and free from having to really work. So although my family tells me I'm busier now than I ever was when I uh, was practicing law. And I think- Wow. So Brian, go ahead. So one of the things that I love about your kind of background and your experience is there's a really strong element of genealogical education. Kind of what was it about, because you know you do a lot of talks and presentations, you've written books, you've written articles, kind of what was it about the kind of educational format that, that really kind of spoke well, to you? Well, I really believe that we are um, 
we meaning African-American genealogists, that, that the community is kind of underserved. Um, you can read uh, the peer-reviewed journals that other folk can read and, and pick up lots of pointers about how, what are fair assumptions to make, for example, when you're looking at a record. And, and you can certainly get guidance from case studies that do not involve African-Americans, but I just saw that there was just a dearth of that kind of guidance. And I also like to point out to everyone that, and I, I was mentioning this to you earlier, that when you are researching anybody before the Civil War, you're basically looking at the same records that you, and, and that, and, and I, I wasn't the first person to say this, but it's true that the community or the ethnicity may, may change, but the standards are the same and how you use those standards. And I know that I made all of the mistakes that I see people making now. I sat in a, a one of those pre-lecture uh, things at OGS, and, and it was at the, it was the year they were in Richmond, and we were at the, uni the uh, Library of Virginia, and they asked people to raise their hands, how, who, you know, depending on how long they've been researching. And, and from the hands being raised, you would think that it was decades. And, but I could tell from the questions that were being asked that they really hadn't learned a lot about methodology. And I can say that because I was in that same situation. I published three versions of my family history, um, not only because I was getting new information, but I was correcting things. Um, the, you know, simple things like, and, and the fact that I, I have a law degree and I have a graduate law degree. So I had some inkling that I should kind of document some of the stuff I was saying. And so there are footnotes in my last version, but I didn't document it in the way I in which I would now. Mm -hmm. And I, I made the names the same, doesn't mean the person is the same mistake. My great grandfather had a sister named Early. She married a man named Crockett Beasley. And I found a couple in 1880, the 1880 census, and her name was Earlene, and she was married to a man named Crockett Beasley. And I just put them in the family history book because surely this was my early. And, and, and then I went to a, a graveyard where this, my great grandfather's sister was buried and realized that the dates were really off. That this other woman was much too old to be my great grandfather's sister. And, and so I, I might not have glommed on to that name if I'd been thinking of that basic rule that seems so basic now, but it's not um, intuitive, you know? It's. Yeah. There's a lot. I just uh, I just worked on an article that I hope everyone will see published soon in, in the National Genealogical Society Quarterly, and it pulls together a lot of this stuff just in the process of going, writing the article and then going through the editorial process. That, it, you know, it, it's not enough, for example, to find a name on a, on a tax list. Yes, that means that, that that's evidence that person was there. But there is so much more evidence that can be gleaned from records like that. Um, I had a situation where there were three men named Samuel Garrett, and I had to distinguish between them um, on these records. And one, one of the things that helped me do that was only one of them was on this record for one year in the, in the 1870s that, had, that only applied to men between a certain age and 50. So I knew that the person who was like 80 in 1870, that wasn't him. And it wasn't the next oldest person either. It had to be this younger person. It's making those kinds of, using indirect evidence in that way and getting a sense for what's fair, when it's fair to do that, um, that I try to communicate to people. One, one of you will have to shut me up because you might have figured out that I could kind of go, oh, <laughs> I love this horse. No, it's good. You, you just it's gave. good. You're giving, yeah. You, you know, we. This is what it's for. We get you're giving out information, and and that's why we we're very excited to have you on the show because you're feeding something that we that just Brian and I normally talk about. And um, like I know we've had other genealogists on the show, but I don't think they've had the credentials that she's had. Have they? No, I because I can count on one hand the number of black certified genealogists. So. 
Yeah. But we, uh, one of my friends was just um, got her credentials this year. She's out of Atlanta. So again, I have a really good friend, Dr. Debbie Abbott, who's been on the lecture, national lecture circuit for years, and she's very good. And she teaches in my course um, at SLIG. Um, and she just hasn't taken the time to do this because it does take time to put together the prescribed portfolio of projects to submit to the board for certification. And, and it really isn't a function of your experience. It's necessarily, it's how much you've learned about methodology and best practices um, that, and, and that's what the board does. It evaluates your competence based on what you submit. So the other thing I do, and I'm sorry, I, Brian, you yeah, start? Go ahead, Brian. No, actually, because this has actually come up twice, it just seems like a natural point to ask the question, because we're going to get, we're going to get asked this question. If you want to present, if you want to become a board certified member, when you're talking about the portfolio, can you talk a bit about the process and the material? Sure. sure. Um, so the, you file a preliminary application, you pay 75 bucks to file a preliminary application. And technically a year from that date, you're supposed to submit the portfolio. So when I applied, I foolishly thought that it would be like cheating to prepare beforehand. So the only thing that I did before sending in a preliminary application was to line up um, a a client to do a report because one of the pieces in the portfolio is you have to do a research report for someone not in your own family because they want to see how you handle stuff that's not you're not that familiar with and um, so I did line up someone and then I sent in my application and then just like worked like hell to get it done in a year and then I come to find out there are people that are, they call that being on the clock once you file the preliminary application. Well, there are people on the clock for years, apparently. As long as you're willing to pay $75 every year, you can stay on the clock. And what you get for that is there's a listserv where you can interact with other people on the clock and with other certified genealogists and ask questions. And you also get the, we have a quarterly newsletter that has skill building articles and other information. So you get that too. Um, so the pieces of the portfolio, the reason in the preliminary application, they ask you um, about an area that you are familiar of working in. And so I, for example, said, I do a lot of research in South Carolina. And they ask you that because one piece of the portfolio is what is called document work. They will find a document from some area, probably not your home county, and ask you to do a number of different treatments a transcription, an abstract, and then they'll add, you have to formulate a research question based on some individual named in the document, and then do a very preliminary research plan. Like if, you know, there's someone named in this document, what research question might you uh, formulate about that person? And where, what are your first steps in formulating a research plan? So that's one piece, and probably I found it to be the easiest piece. The other piece was um, the report that you have to find, you know, someone other than your family, and you don't have to necessarily answer the uh, a genealogical issue, but you do have to identify some and kind of show that you understand the genealogical proof standard. So that's that's another piece. Um, the most difficult part that I found was what they call um, the case study or proof argument, because you have to. I mean, a lot, a lot of times when we're researching someone, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, you know, especially if you're folks pre before the Civil War. So will you find direct answers, evidence to your genealogical questions? But in a proof argument, you have to identify an issue that where there is no direct evidence, or if there is direct evidence, there's conflicting direct evidence. And you have to show your ability to kind of reason to a credible result, meeting the genealogical proof standard. So my um, article, my case study, and it got subsequently published in the National Genealogical Society Quarterly, was it was a modern genealogical issue, and it was basically what was my father-in-law's birth name. He was born in 1915, and every document you might find said it was Nelson, 
which is, you know, my part of my name now, but his, his, you know, his social security application, you know, in 1940, his, uh, in 1935, his, uh, his, um, the census record in 1940, everything would have said Nelson, but there was so much in, in terms of the, um, the political and social background coupled with the smoking gun was his marriage license where he used his, the name he was born with. And, and it was another one of those stories where the family lore was that he, his dad got in trouble with some white folks and had to leave and he changed his name. And, and um, it, so it wasn't something that there was, I think there are people in the family who still don't accept this, but it wasn't, it wasn't a case where you could, where the documents that gave you direct evidence were correct. So you had to write a proof argument. Right. So that, that was my proof argument. But there are people who um, think they found an issue and then they find direct evidence that's like, it can't be questioned and they have to find another issue. So that is probably the most difficult part, but it really makes you, um, it works your brain. It makes you think about things in a different yeah. way. So it sounds like geometry, like I always say. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's it, just... it does. I mean, think about it. If you look at geometry, if you look at if you look at math, and I, I like math, so I think this is why I kind of connected. Why when you said geometry, I thought you were saying that this is difficult, too difficult to do, and it's not. No, no. What I mean by it is, is this: geometry as a whole. The, the, the basis of geometry is to prove that an angle is an angle, period. That's the basis of geometry. You have your hypothesis that you have to write. You have to then do the, do the work to prove it right or wrong. That's genealogy. Um, so the other piece, <laughs> the other piece is a kinship determination um, where, they, where you have to, right now, I think they reduced it from four to three. It used to be four generations. You have to go through um, and do a proving parent-child relationships, and depending on what form you take, you can, it can be a narrative or a genealogy or a lineage. Um, and in doing that, they expect you to then uh, exhibit use of the genealogical proof stamp. So they just they don't want just names and dates, and invariably you're gonna there will be issues that they expect you to resolve. So. That's the thing, and and this is the other thing that um, you can't you when you present this portfolio, you have to um, represent that this is your work. You haven't had help with it, so I always use my Garrett folk for in lectures and and for assignments when I was taking courses, and I before I didn't realize that, so I couldn't use any of my Garrett stuff for my portfolio. So I had to I used other lines that made me. Um, there's an article I published in the Arts Journal about my Neely line, and that was one of my uh, things that I did for my portfolio because I hadn't looked into them as deeply. Um, so that's another caveat about um, what you submit because they just want to see how you, how confident you are in using genealogical methodology. Okay, well, Donnie, it sounds as though we're kind of all set because I, I swear every time. Monia, me, Sharon, Loretta, Maud, any one of our kind of happy research group tackles an, an obituary. We always get this name of an extra kid that no one knew anything about, and we're like, okay, well, who's this? <laughs> That's Loretta's fault, and you know it, because Loretta continues to find people, and I know she's watching, and I don't care, because <laughs> I love her dearly, and she knows that I love her, but Loretta... <laughs> Loretta, no, her name is Loretta Bellamy, and oh, she's um, also a researcher out of Edgefield. And I swear to God, LaBrenda, Loretta will send us a message. She'll send me, Brian, and Hamad Asad a message on, on Facebook. Real quick, just want to let y'all know, I have so many kids, and they found this. We'll talk later. And we're like, what? <laughs> you know, we're looking at her like, you got to be kidding me. Come on now. Loretta, stay off my messenger. Like, I'm, that's me. That's what I tell her. Loretta, I don't have time to be dealing with you today. Brian then goes, jumps in, and starts looking. Hamad is like, you really just left us hanging. Like, this is constant. This is how we do it every single time. And I just, and then she just comes back with, what? 
And so she says, like, you, you just did it again. You just found somebody else, like with our, with Molly. And then finding Molly, she ended up finding like what three more children? More children. Four. Yeah. They, so it's it's crazy. It's crazy. But go ahead, Brian. You got another question? Genetic genealogy. You'll find all kind of folks, right? Right. Oh my God. Yes. So we have one person who um wanted to know as far as the the association of professional genealogists is there is there is a way now i think i know this but i want you to talk about it there's a way to go onto that site and find someone to help you do something because we had one person that actually asked that question your directory is right public facing side and we also have a on the bcg the board for certification website there's a directory of people who um take clients. I don't take clients. I mean, I should say I'm very selective. I really concentrate on writing and lecturing. Okay. So how, how did you get into the lecturing? You know what? And we had like, our next show is going to be, well, not our next show, but we have a show coming up where right now we have you who's already the genealogist, who's already the person who's gone through all of the different steps. We're going to have another show where it's a beginner and she's looking to get into genealogy and making it an, an overall career. So I think as far as um, what you're doing with the lecturing and things of that nature, how you know how did you make it to the point where you're now a lecturer? Well, uh, You've got people calling you, requesting. The um, well, I did, there is a, a method to this madness that I wasn't aware of. But I mentioned my good friend Dr. Debbie Abbott, who's been on the lecture circuit circuit for a while. So um, I sent in one proposal to this conference and it was ignored. And then when I became friendly with her, she explained to me something about the economics of these conferences, especially, especially if they're flying you out somewhere. They want you, they, they want to see two or three, not just one. They're not going to fly you out for one proposal. They're going to, they'll, they'll want to choose among some proposals, especially if they have a theme. So those are things I really hadn't thought about. I was just thinking, hey, I'm certified now. They should want me to lecture. <laughs> and, um, and I'll tell you, it's a lot of work. At least the way I do it is a lot of work. So it really had a lot to do with getting a first lecture and, and people hearing me. And I think people can tell how much work I put into my lectures. So that has something to do with it. And they do have, um, usually at NGS, for example, at the National Genealogy Society annual meeting, it's usually an African-American track. And or there may be African-Americans or people lecturing about African-American issues in other, in other tracks. Um, so if that is your interest, um, not everybody lectures in right. just on that. Like, like I told you, I've had people tell me, oh, you should lecture on other subjects. And the thing about it is, I think whatever I lecture on, I'm, I'm trying to teach standards and methodology. And people have come to me, white people, to say, oh, I hadn't thought about that um, in, in terms of, of some technique that I've used that isn't just limited to African-Americans. The, um, there's another thing I want to mention which is the other thing I do, which is why I'm so busy, is there is an organization called the Sons and Daughters of the U.S. Middle Passage. Are you familiar uh -huh. with that? Yeah. So I am the registrar general for that. I'm not the first one. Rick Murphy was the first one when the organization started. Rick now is the VP for History of, of OGS, the national um, board. And, um, and so I first became his assistant uh, registrar. And I, and I started doing that because I otherwise... I mean, I have all of these family lines I could, and I do research, but I just wanted to stay fresh and be exposed to different areas of the country, and, and it's a way to do that. So I come across really interesting things that I didn't know about before starting that job. So I'm the Registrar General. It's a, for people who don't know, it's a lineage society that honors our ancestors who were enslaved or indentured before 1865. And the first time I heard about it, I thought it was a fabulous idea. Apparently, there have been an attempt some years ago to start something like this, but it turned into more of a membership society and not 
one that actually requires you to prove your descent from an enslaved person, which we've actually come across one person who can't do that. So it's not easy to do um, in all cases. And we do end up making some assumptions if people do enough work to show that there's no evidence that their ancestor was free. So it's more than just showing up in the 1870 census for the first time. But I think it's it's a worthwhile organization. It's a useful organization. And I wanted to just mention that. No, that's, that's actually a, a, a good thing to do because one of the things about that particular society reminds me a lot of the DAR, which is- that the woman started it, Evelyn McDowell, Dr. Evelyn McDowell is an African-American member of the DAR. See, and, and I, I worked there and, and that lineage group, that's what made me think about that. So I haven't, I haven't, what are some of the, um, what, what allows you to join? What is it that they're looking for in order for you to join? The same thing with DAR, DAR we, we call them our honored American um, uh, ancestors just proving descent, it's to honor those ancestors who were enslaved or indentured in the United States. So you have to prove your lineage that you're descended from someone. Okay. Um, so, I so with the DAR, you have to have DNA. Well, okay. in order to, you, you don't have to have DNA. Let me rephrase that. You have to be descended from a patriot. So we right. have a surprising number of people who can do that. Rick Murphy, for example, his mother is a member of DAR and a member of Sons and Daughters, as we call ourselves for short. And they're actually descended from a black patriot, which is unusual, I think. Yeah, Most, that is unusual. A lot of her early, the early members were Evelyn's friends from DAR who were black, who also thought this was a great idea. So we have a number of people who are members of DAR and members of Sons and Daughters. But I think most of the folk are just, are not DAR members because it's difficult. I think the DAR, if I recall correctly, is only accepting DNA evidence for Y DNA. Yes, that's what I was getting ready to say. Yeah, because I work there. So I, I know what it is you have to do. And yeah, they're only accepting it. So for me, even though I know I have a connection to some, uh, a few white patriots, I can't join because it's Y DNA. We have, uh, we have one woman who is a member of both, and she actually is descended from a white woman who had children with a black man. So her ancestors show up in the 1850 census with this white woman, and the white woman's father or, or grandfather was a patriot, and that's the basis on which she. But people right. doing a DAR, um, you know, you just show prove descent from a patriot. Um, but I, um, and, and, and people say to me, can't you find a patriot? Well, I'm not really looking for one. I'm really focusing on my African-American lives. <laughs> but I did, they, they have this luncheon every year, this Forgotten Patriots Luncheon, and I did attend. And a lot of people I, I know belong to that. But um, I thought Sons and Daughters was a great idea, a great way to honor our ancestors and encourage people to uh, investigate or research those lines. So the question I'm going to ask you is, let's pretend, for instance, that I'm, I'm, brand, I'm thinking about doing genealogy. I haven't really started yet. What advice would you give me to stay organized, to keep on track, and to not get scattered? Well, I really think that, um, I think I told you, the first thing I did was to take that Boston University course. And, and I've even, for a few years, I was at, working as a teaching assistant in that course because I thought that would be another way to kind of stay plugged in and keep me fresh and, and all of that. But, and I'm, I'm no longer doing that. But that is kind of pricey. There's something called Progen. The Progen study group, I think when I took it, it was 30 bucks just to gain access to the base camp. And now I think it's a hundred bucks. And when I took it, it was like 18 months or something. Now it's like 13 months, but it's a study group and they organize them as they, there's always a waiting list. They organize them as they get a certified genealogist or an accredited genealogist to mentor the group and a coordinator. And I think that they're up to like group 42 just finished. So I was the mentor for group 37. So the wonderful thing about Trojan, especially if you're totally, if you're a real newbie, is that they take the book Professional Genealogy and they go through it chapter by chapter. And there are assignments 
and you get feedback from other people in your group and feedback from the person mentoring the group. There's a once a month video chat on each subject. And when I went through Cogen, a lot of what I did kind of prepared me to put together my portfolio. And that is the, not only the most, I think, cost-effective way to kind of get a crash education um, before you start going off on a you know, scattershot, because that's what a lot of people do. They don't think that, they don't think of this in terms of this is a discipline and there's a way to do this and a way to do this more efficiently than just sitting at your computer and thinking you're gonna find all the answers there. And even if you're finding answers there, not really getting from information what you should. I mean, one of the, the five elements of the genealogical proof standard is that you have to analyze and correlate all of your evidence. You can't just take one piece of evidence and say, this is, this is, the, this is the answer. You have to do something. I call it gleaning information from the evidence. Yeah, um, yeah. The, um, so when, whenever my article gets published in the queue that I've been working on, I just try to throw a lot of that in there, like a lot of, uh, not, not just the sources, but how you use those sources. And I, and I use my own past, you know, missteps in describing to people um, what they shouldn't do. Like, I know that many of us start with oral history and I think it's important, but I always tell folks that you should try to document as much as you can. And, and I use the example of my paternal grandmother who told me that she, that she had a great grandmother named Mariah Hood. And she thought that this great grandmother was her paternal grandfather's mother. And that's what I wrote in the last edition of my family history book, because taking my grandmother's word for gospel and that this Mariah Hood had a brother that my grandmother called Uncle Big Tom when she was a little girl. So I, it wasn't until I started like actually researching the line and doing something as simple as following everybody I'm researching through every census record, which if nobody tells you to do that, you wouldn't necessarily do that. And when I did that though, what I realized is that she did have a great grandmother named Mariah Hood, but it was her, it was her grandmother, paternal grandmother's mother, not her not her nearly great grandfathers. And, and I found her, so Mariah Hood, um, she uh, was, her husband died sometime after the 1880 census. And in 1900, she was enumerated in the home of a man named Thomas Hood as his sister. So there was just no question that that was Uncle Big Tom. And so there was some truth to that. The, the story my grandmother, you know, shared with me, but it's only by doc, trying to document it that I realized that this was, because people get old, their memories fade. Right, right. And I don't think she didn't show up in the 1910 census. So I'm sure you know, my grandmother was a very little girl when she would have been around this woman. There's just a lot to, and I, I talk about um, the, uh, when you look at a document, we, so we have one single person that I, anybody's found who bought his freedom in Lawrence County. And the, the woman I was telling you about whom I met in the same month she died, she found his deed of manumission. And I found a, and because I've been talking to people in Lawrence County, and so someone came across this in an estate file. It's online now, but it wasn't then. A, a sale, a bill of sale where he had bought a woman and two little girls. Well, I had that thing for 20 years without ever reading the whole thing, focusing on the fact that there was an equity court case that it said this sale is decreed by a court of equity, which meant that, because there were no burnt counties, Lawrence is not a burnt county. That meant that there was a record of this case. And that case turned out to have so much more direct information about that ancestor and the people who purchased and the other people who were on that sale bill, including a person who turned out to be my third great grandmother. So. It's that kind of thing that people, I, I think that's not intuitive unless you've been made to focus on how you handle documents. Right. I know for me, go ahead, Brian. I was just gonna say, um, I know from my own personal experience, especially researching in Virginia, like really early colonial period, where 
you will see references that wills have been lost, that, you know, it's a burnt county, the, the courthouse was burnt, the will was lost, the probate was lost. But come to find out that there were court cases that actually had copies of those wills in the state inventory. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing. People are greedy, have been greedy for, for hundreds of years, right? So especially these, um, these equity cases arising out of probate matters where the children were fighting over stuff mm -hmm. in genealogical detail for everyone because the, in an equity court, they didn't follow the rules of law. They were supposed to do what was fair. And what that meant is that they had to look at all of the facts and circumstances. So I've had that same experience, Brian, where um, they were fighting over enslaved children and the mother of those enslaved children. And in the pleadings uh, were the, um, the original slaveholders will and then his, his wife's will 20 years later and a sale bill that gave like really direct information about where one of my fourth grade grandmothers came from that she had been purchased as a child when she was about two years old in Virginia and brought to Lawrence County. And you just don't find, and this, this is all a result of, if I had read that sale bill that, that someone found 20 years ago and understood that I should have chased down that equity court case, I would have found that information so much sooner. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this question. Do you have to, um, do you have to be, okay, so you know, I haven't, I, I have not gone through all of the steps of becoming considered a genealogist. I've been just doing it for 25 years. So do you have to be, no, you don't have to become certified as I'm saying. So certified genealogists, we are, we are a minority of the profession. The Association for Professional Genealogists has thousands of members, and you can join that without having to jump through hoops, although they recently did something that I think makes a lot of sense. They, um, I don't know if it's mandatory, but they, they're encouraging their members to um, do continuing education because that makes sense to me, that nobody knows everything. I mean, last uh, summer, I took Tom Jones's uh, Mastering Genealogical Documentation course because it just causes you to think more deeply about what it is you're doing. And as I said, I count you among the people who are doing great work without having jumped through all of these hoops. It was my own personal vanity that wants people to know, I know what I'm doing. And some other folks think I know what I'm doing too. <laughs> It's really, really important because um, I'm going through Library of Congress withdrawals. I mean, really honest about that. I don't think I've been away from that place for so long. But I got into the habit. Uh, it was a, a family, a Family Tree magazine article about you know sources and citations. So I was doing some work on my Hammonds. I was in, in, I was pulling out all of these reels. And I started taking photographs of all the information that was on the reel. So when I got home, create a folder, do all that, you know, say what room it was in, what reel it was on, what frame number, all of that information. So if I, if anyone were to ever ask me about that, or I had to go and find it again, I don't have to go back to square one. Uh, you are more organized than a lot of folks because I yes, he is. <laughs> One of the things, like one of the elements of the genealogical proof standard is that you document every fact that's not common knowledge. So I had the experience of doing these three family history books and needing to figure out where something came from. And, and sometimes I documented it because I might mention a funeral program and sometimes I didn't. And so it's not only to help you go back to find something, but also anyone who reads your work should be able to backtrack and, and see that you, yeah, you knew what you were doing. And yes, it does say this. So we have a question from Tanisha Watson, and she said, you mentioned use of an ancestral line in CG portfolio. Can a prospect use a line submitted as proof to the BAR or to the sons and daughters as part of their certified genealogist portfolio? The short answer is no, for this reason. It's not, it's not that you can't use that line, but you need to submit it in a format that is, that's um, required or prescribed. So it could be a narrative that just des describes 
the family line. It could be a, a straight lineage where you're not looking at the siblings and all of their children or a, a genealogy. And um, and normally, I, 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 the sons and daughters form basically copies of DAR form. It's not presented in that way. And interestingly, a lot of people have, um, so I haven't come across a lot of cases where we needed to do a proof argument. Most of the cases involve applicants who can document, just they have records to document what they, um, their descent from a particular person. So it can't just be, you can't just turn in what you sent to um, DAR or sons and daughters. You'd have to put it in the format that, um, and, and do it and do it in, in more in depth, because as I said, you need to showcase your ability to use the genealogical proof standard in at least two of the generations. And if you're doing a, a, a comprehensive job, you invariably are going to come across issues that there is no clear answer for, like someone's age, for example. You know, that's an issue that may, you may be forged records with different suggestions about an age or a maiden name, for example. So, so Shelly and I, because while you're talking, Shelly said, I want to join the Sons and the Daughters. <laughs> Yeah, Shelly Murphy. She's and I was like, Bernice is a member, and I'm a member. Why? <laughs> so she was like, I want to join, and I said, So do I. So then she said, Well, let's do it. I said, Okay, we will do. <laughs> so this is my question. So for me, if I if I wanted to join, because I do know for a fact that I my two times great grandmother was enslaved, who she was enslaved by. Thing about her though is that in 1870, her last name was, well, let me rephrase that all from the beginning. In 1870, her children was Brooks. But by 1880, she continued to stay Brooks, but she changed the ones that were still living with her, their last name to Yeldale, which is who I am now. I'm, I'm, I'm a descendant of the Yeldales. But I have no idea why. Now, I have everything for her, even more than actually not more than likely even finding her on the 1850 and 1860 slave schedule is that the information that i would need to to submit to sons and daughters well yes and it's, uh, form, the form asks you if you know the enslaver's name and after that if you know the period um that the person and where the person was enslaved um, not everybody has these, you know, the exact years or um, the locations, the precise locations. But the main part of the form is um, there's one form that just you just go down to the generation of the enslaved persons with birth dates and um, and other information showing that you're descended from this person. And then the the form, and then the next page is uh, your where you list your documentation. And so one issue that some people have is um, like the DAR, we actually require proof of things like in the modern era, if you have a birth certificate, so we wanna see a birth certificate. And if you change your name by marriage, we wanna see that. But like the DAR, we follow their rule and their rule is that any document that's less than hundred years old, we destroy. So the only people who see that stuff is um, the president to whom the application goes and then I see it. And then um, we have an assistant registrar. If she may work on an application that I don't work on. But, um, and some people who do have privacy concerns, I, if they're in the area, although I don't really offer this to everybody, but I will like meet them or just look at to see that this is, because the other thing is that we want this to be a real linear society. If people really have proven that this is their line of descent. It's not just a membership association for people to feel good about. It's encouraging people to document their lineage. We've had some young people join who believe we may one day get reparations and they're members of sons and daughters, so they're set. <laughs> In some of the cases that have been brought, that's where they've fallen down, failing to be able to show that they are descended from someone who was harmed by slavery. Uh, not our members. <laughs> Go ahead, Brian. This is a really good point, a really good example. So how, so for instance, if she's applying, 
how does she address the question of in 1870, Martha and her children are called Brooks, then in 1880, for a reason- This is why, this is where the genealogical proof standard comes in and you use indirect evidence to prove your case. They're in a household together, the same given names, for example. She can show that. Mm -hmm. um, and there may be other, I mean, are there, um, in South Carolina, we didn't have, we didn't have records until 1911 or 1915, but right. there may be other kinds of documents. It's, 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 uh, well, I think we were able to work it out because she still had enough of the kids in the house whose names changed. It was weird. It's like one day they went to school as Brooks's and the next day they went to school. Listen, in this, in this article, which I hope you'll see one day, um, I've written about my second great grandfather, Isaac Garrett, before. Just was, the article was focused on finding his slaveholder. But one of the things I did is, um, and he's in the 1870 census. My great-grandfather was in the household with him as a child. His name and his wife's name were my great-grandfather's death certificate. But I had to prove that Isaac Garrett was the same Isaac that was sold as a boy when his Garrett owner died to someone with a different surname. Um, and one of the ways I did that, and, and, and I did this in connection with writing my book, is I actually looked at like every single page of the census record for Lawrence County. So I know and can just state without definitively that there was no other Isaac Garrett except mm -hmm. no other black Isaac Garrett except my great grandfather. And there was no Isaac using that other surname because he was, we figured out he was between 17 and 19 years old when he was sold out of this estate. And the people who were very likely his grandparents were sold out of the same estate they were sold to someone with a different surname. In 1870, they went back to Garrett's. Garrett's are the people we were more closely associated with. They're the ones that our family law tells us brought us to Lawrence from Virginia. And so it's all of that, some people might call it circumstantial, but indirect evidence that you correlate and analyze to show that all of the evidence points to this conclusion. Okay, so, okay, so, because I'm really, I'm planning on doing this, like, we, we, we are literally, while you're talking, we're literally on this, on the chat, okay. saying, okay, are you going to do it? Yeah, I'm going to do it, so we're doing, so here's my, we have fabulous conferences, and we, we didn't have one this year, but we've had wonderful, wonderful speakers, one year we had a mother and son who are descendants of Solomon Northrop come and speak to us. Wow. We, um, and you know we 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 give out book awards for people who write about things relevant to us, and it's it's really a wonderful organization, and one mainly that the main purpose is just to honor those ancestors. You know, so where people there was a time when people were ashamed of being descended from enslaved people. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Brian. I hope we can get this one in in, in under five minutes. So okay, um, I spent usually I spend a lot of time teaching people the difference between a primary document, which is a document that the person actually filled out themselves, a, sec a secondary document, which is a document about someone. But this happens more on Ancestry than I find in other, other sites, what I call user-generated records, like the Netherlands genealogical albums, or there's another set called the US marriage stuff. So basically ancestry or someone pulling things out of people's trees and then actually making them look like legitimate kind of primary resources. Do you have any tips or tricks or suggestions to people to be able well, to- you know, this is the thing. Family search is free. I'm not affiliated with family search in any way, but documents that years ago, I could only see in, in the courthouse in Lawrence or at the state archives in Columbia are online. Now it's true, a lot of them aren't, um, but for my home county, all of those probate records, now they're not indexed, but there's stuff like that equity case. I knew from uh, that sale bill around the time where, I, where it should be. And so I just looked through all of the cases for that year and came across it. Um, you should always try to find the original or something as close to the original as possible. 
because for a variety of reasons, people, one, they don't always include all of the information that's in the original documents, or, and sometimes you may find if there was, if a courthouse burned, they may not be, you may not be able to get the original. But if you can get an image of the original, that's the thing you should strive to do. Okay. All right. A lot of people, and people send in to sons and daughters, these ancestry transcripts. That's the other thing I, I know we're going to time, but they, like my ancestor who bought his freedom, he, the census takers didn't always follow directions. So the, in the first year in which he appears in the census, they wrote COL by his name. And the ancestry, um, there's, a, there's a note that says Colonel with a question mark. And it was for colored. And, the, and another transcript um, has enlisted as a woman so when i need to go back to that record if i'm on ancestry i have to use the name of the woman in his household because if i put in his name and male it would not come up so wow. you never ever rely on a transcript if you can get the original yeah yeah well this has been an awesome show very 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 informative <laughs> talk a lot though <laughs> If I could get you to join Donna and you too, Brian. I'm joining. Yeah, I'll join. Oh, no, I'm, yeah, we're, we're, it's being done. Like, when I get off of here and me and Brian go over our posts, and, and we would love to talk to you after this is over for a little while because we, we try to do a post up. Um, but once this, I'm, I'm literally joining son, sons and daughters. I'm doing it. Like, it's done. <laughs> And, and we had some really great, and see, I didn't even get to talk about DNA, which is what, which is the other thing, but soon, and I can't say when, because I'm not sure, you're going to be able to read this article I've written, because the, in addition to it, pulling together all of my Garrett research, and documenting, like, back to, I can document four, four great-grandparents, back to 1785, that's when, well, 84 was when the earliest was born, it's a DNA article at bottom, but you have to wow. do too. And that's the other thing I'm excited about because we have, we've only had one DNA article involving an enslaved family out of um, the National Genealogical Society of Portland. That's if you don't count the special issue they did about Jefferson and Sally. Sally. <laughs> but right. that's fine. There's only had one involving an enslaved family and DNA. All right. Well, Brian, you want to talk about what's next, what next week's show? Um, I will post more information about that on Monday, tomorrow. Okay. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for talking with everybody and sharing the information. And I don't know, maybe we might have you back for the DNA part, right? Because we really need some stuff with that. And we have a lot of people, including myself. Like, I didn't know that I knew as much about DNA as I do until I talked with Brian. And he's like, yeah, that's right. That's right. But I'm still kind of... I'm lost when it comes. Sometimes I hate science, so I love math, but I hate science. And as far as I'm concerned, you speak in DNA, you're speaking in tongues to me. And it's just a whole nother monster, but yet it's a tongue that I understand to a certain degree. So yeah, we definitely, definitely would love to have you back. And um, thank you so much for joining us. After the article, we can back and talk about it. Okay, so we'll wait to after the article. <laughs> but in the meantime, as I'm posting information about next week's show, I will post a show, uh, post information to LaBrenda's website. So again, that has your talks, your background, the books that you have for sale, um, just all of that. Just really yeah, we didn't get into any of that. <laughs> but LaBrenda has, so has, has two books, the Lawrence County book, and then there's another one. Am I correct? Okay, I actually had it here. My this Lawrence County book. Well, the others are my 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 family history books, which have, okay. and the last one, which is like 2008. And again, I'm still proud of it because it gathered a bunch of stuff together. But it was written before I ever took a course. That's awesome. Well, just thank you again, and thank you guys for checking in and watching the show. We love our followers. You guys are everywhere. So again, I'm Donya. Brian, thank you so much for joining us, LaBrenda, and we will see you next week, next Sunday at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Stay on, LaBrenda.